Today is a very significant day in the United States, Martin Luther King Day, a tremendous icon of freedom, of strength, of equality. We couldn't think of a better guest than the one we have today, Dr. Amber Sessoms, a woman who is dedicated to those things, helping children to, to learn and to grow and to know that they, are, that they are vital and that they matter. One of the things that Dr. King said is this, life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? Well, today, on the day we remember and commemorate him, we hope you'll enjoy this interview with Dr. Amber Sessoms because she's doing a lot for others, especially the children, the young people in our world. Well, welcome, Amber. Great to have you with us. It's especially fun to have somebody in the studio with us. This is only the second time that that's happened, I think. And so uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's exciting. <laughs> well, with it now being 2020, one of the things that we love to do is we do a lot of reflecting, just mm -hmm. reflecting on the year that has been. And as you kind of look back on 2019, what are some of the greatest lessons maybe that you learned and uh, some of the things that you're taking into 2020? I mean, that's a great question. I think one of the big things for me is that I have to be careful who and what I give my energy to. Um, I will kind of expend myself and, and kind of shrivel up. You know, I'll use everything that I have uh, for a cause that I really believe in. And sometimes there's not that much in return. So I have to really be mindful what I'm giving my energy to. And that could be negative energy as well. So I'm really careful with that. And also trying to find people that can that are in the helms that don't have a voice yet to kind of do some of this work I'm trying to do to step up and support the work. Because when you're, when you're in the work, especially when you're doing equity and inclusion work, when you're doing it alone, it's very isolating. Um, so when I have other people that have the same, same vision, have the same beliefs, and they can echo it, so I'm not always the one at the front saying it, it's, it's really been helpful to me to continue to, to, to continue to do the work. So that's really important. Well, thanks for giving your time to us. Yes, thank you. today. Yeah. One of the things we want to talk about today is mental illness. So could you share with us and, and our listeners what are some of the signs of mental illness? What is mental illness? If you can define yeah. that and, and, and then what it looks like. It, it can look different in different people, but I think one of the biggest things is like there's an issue of people being sad. And that could be for various reasons. If you have someone that has died or, you know, if there's some kind of loss of job or transferring there's a normal reaction you have to normal life events uh, but when it becomes regret per pervasive across multiple settings say it's longer than two week period um, it's affecting multiple areas of your life with your relationships your work um, which it's changing your thought process those are different things you want to really keep in mind because uh, i think with mental illness it's there's a part where you can manage it and there's a part where it's just kind of disrupting everything and you really need to get some uh, a higher level of help to kind of help you to manage your behaviors and your thought process because it can kind of interrupt your daily ways of being and knowing so that those interrupting thoughts um, sometimes people have hallucinations um, delusions I had a student that was diagnosed with schizophrenia and I, the one day he said to me well it's normal to see things right I said uh, well you know he's like you see things right I'm like no I don't see things but for him because that's a normal part of his every day he thought it was normal that was normal to him but I think for people that even deal with depression they think this is normal, it's normal to have suicidal thoughts because it's something they deal with every day. But it's, we want people to understand that like, you don't have to feel this way every day. This is not typical behavior, or typical thought patterns um, that you should have. So getting people to understand what they're feeling is not what the general population feels every day and, and getting them to want help because sometimes you get stuck in feeling this way and being comfortable feeling the way you're feeling. What would you say to people who think it's kind of like a, almost a moral issue? Mm. Yeah, that's hard because I, and we always go back to, you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian, I, I'm in the Baptist church right now, and it's always this issue of, you know, well, you're not praying hard enough, you don't have enough faith, 
you're not believing hard enough. But I'm like, well, when people have heart disease and diabetes, they take medication for that, right? Mm. So, you know, these are brain-based disorders that really need a higher level of help because it does impact every area of your functioning. Um, so we have people within our church that will even talk openly about their depression, which I think really helps to destigmatize it. Uh, but that's a big thing. Like, just pray it away. You're not praying hard enough. But, you know, you can't pray away um, these chronic illnesses that you have. And getting to own it and understand what you have and, and be okay with it kind of helps you to kind of um, – and understand that there's a face to it. So when you can name – when someone says in their congregation, I have depression. I've been dealing with it all my life. It's common for people, you know, in the field, if they're dealing with death, they're dealing with all types of things that they have to do in pastoral work. It's really common. So when they make it common and make it an everyday occurrence and people are more apt to say, I have that too, and it's okay. It absolutely helps a lot when others can, can talk about it, right. doesn't it? And bring it out of the darkness. Exactly. And into the light. It's, it's destigmatized. It's, people realize they're not alone. Yes. And that they don't have to, they don't have to live with this alone. Mm-hmm. That, that makes sense. Do you, I mean, do, do you see people resisting that, or I think I see two realms, especially when working in schools where there's kids that believe that it's, and I think that's part of the illness too, right? It's that I'm the only one going through this. Like my life is worse than everyone else's. No one can understand what I'm going through, and there is some truth to that. Like no one's depression is the same, but when you get in that realm of thinking like I'm the only one that has this, this illness or that it affects me in this way, you kind of start isolating yourself and then it's the less chance of you getting help. But then you have other people that, you know, they are kind of willing to say and share everything about their, their illness. So you have these two extremes, but then I think it is helpful when you can see someone that looks just like you, that's living a normal life, um, that has depression. Like for example, for myself, I've dealt with this all my life, depression. Um, I had a traumatic childhood with my mom leaving at four so that kind of triggered my um, depression there so I tell kids and I talk about it because you know I'm successful I'm working every day I have a family I have three children I'm I'm married so it still puts a face to and says well she can do it and she's managing it then it's something that I can do and it's not the stigma that has to be attached to it. C.S. Lewis is a theologian that we reference often, and he once said that friendship happens the moment one person says to another, "What? Me too." Yeah. And um, you know, and I'm I'm in that 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 crowd as well. Mm-hmm. And depression's been a part of my story, and I've been pretty open about it in our writing in our books, uh, especially heading into this time of year is especially yes. heightened. And so I'm always trying to be more aware of it. But I'm you know I think it's just so helpful to be open and honest and authentic about mm-hmm. it to be real about it, uh, to be true. I think you hit, when you say be aware, like, so you're recognized. I know for me as a school yeah. psychologist, I will, I'm literally analyzing myself throughout the day or, you know, the weeks. And I'm like, well, I'm getting more, you know, I'm having more thoughts or am I moderate to, to, to mild? <laughs> so I'm doing yeah, that in my exactly. own head. But when you're aware of the symptoms, then you can start addressing it. So when you're kind of out there, like, oh, this is normal. No, it's, this is a little bit more severe where I'm kind of getting, you know, I'm having intrusive thoughts or like for me, I get really lethargic, yeah. super lethargic, where I'm just tired all the time and um, distracted is one of my biggest things. Um, so those are the things that I have to keep in mind and being like, okay, I need to do something different. Mm-hmm. What's going on with me? But being aware. Yeah, huge. and I, I think for me, some of the things that I've over time become more aware of is not over scheduling myself mm-hmm. during the season, seasonal depression, not making really important decisions like that's huge kind yeah. of tabling them for maybe later in the year or a better time of the year the other thing is it's especially hard for me because i am an outdoorsy person i love to be in the outdoors and through the winter it's dark it's dreary the days are shorter there's not a whole lot of sunshine we're working during the day so it's right. hard to find the time to do that but again just staying active has been vital uh, but just to be aware to be we, aware we talked about huge Let's talk about some, some statistics. Mm-hmm. They're staggering. One in five young people live with mental illness, which is 20% of the population. Mm-hmm. But the other statistic is that only about 4% of the total health care budget is spent on mental health. Can you speak to that as to why that may be and what you would like to see change? I mean, these are the questions we ask all the time being in um, education, because what we find oftentimes is as uh, being in the field that we are becoming the inpatient facilities. 
um, it's, it's pretty scary. So we'll, we'll oftentimes we'll have inpatient facilities call us and say, we don't know what to do with this kid. We're sending him back to school. Um, and we had a conversation with some, some local physicians and, you know, crisis workers, and they say it comes down to two things, and they don't want to say it, right? But they, it's, it comes down to insurance, and then they just don't have any, they don't have the space. So insurance is really making these big decisions and saying, I mean, you'll call some insurance providers, and they won't even have a physician on call, and it'll be a, a worker that's making the call if this child should be admitted or not. And sometimes you have to go through the ranks, go up, you know, inpatient and get people to override that. But that's really what it's coming down to is these insurance companies are making these decisions that, you know, they only get three days in or they don't get any days in. Um, And also the other part of it is I think everyone's overtaxed. So and, you know, these students now are getting also really savvy at saying the right things and not giving themselves, you know, not giving the helpers enough to, to admit them. So I have students that say, I know what to say and what not to say. I'm not going to say that because I don't want to be admitted. And they learn that. You know, they, this is learned behavior they're learning from their friends that have been admitted or, you know, they're hearing bad stories about inpatient facilities. So they take that and they, they, they don't want to be honest. But again, it goes with the stigma. Then you're saying, I'm quote unquote crazy. You're going to put me in a, a padded room and, and, you know, put my arms behind my back. And that's not what it is. But it's, again, it's that stigma attached to it. And I think, too, the fear-mongering, we're so focused on, you know, the aspect of making our schools, hardening our schools, right? Making sure that they're safe for, you know, people that might come in and, and have weapons that are going to, you know, shoot up our school. It doesn't happen that regularly. The statistics for that are much less than students dying by suicide. But that's what we're focused on in this country because the media perpetuates that. Um, so we do have grants that are available. You know, PA has the grants. Um, a lot of times, though, it's it, it's really happy the people that are getting the grants is focused on hardening the schools, and then there's some of that they call it the soft skills. But I'm like, I feel like that should be the focus of social emotional learning. You know, teaching our kids how to cope, how to be resilient, how to how to deal with life's adversity. But instead, we're focusing on getting um, security officers in the school, armed guards, and it's just it's I think it's it's, it's really a political issue. Yeah, I have two follow-up questions. One is you had shared a statistic with us earlier on about suicide. Could you share that again with our listeners? Yeah, it's, it's the number one, you know, leading cause of death among, you know, 10, and, and the statistics keep changing, but it's going lower and lower in age, up to age 24. So when you have these statistics and you see in Pennsylvania in particular, you know, it's, it's increasingly getting worse year after year. Um, we're kind of leading the charge on this, and but there's nothing really being done. Like there's some language within our legislation that's focusing on it, even though they're still saying let's work on this gun reform law. There's some language showing that you know people that have access to weapons that are um, more likely to create or to do these heinous acts are themselves suicidal in nature because they kind of just given up if they die and you know doing this act and then so be it. Um, but there's still not that focus on the mental health. Like you hear it, right? You hear, oh well, you know they were mentally ill. But then you also have this misnomer, so now you're saying that these people are mentally ill, that they have depression, so the people that have depression are thinking, like, I'm not gonna say I have depression because they're saying I'm crazy mm-hmm. and I'm gonna shoot up people. And that's not true. Just because someone is mentally ill, they're not, they're not you know, this high level of going to kill people or do mass um, shootings. But that's where it's, it's gone to now, where people are still, I think, in the shadows because there's a connection now. If I have depression, if I have these mental illnesses, they're going to think that I'm going to be the next school shooter. So my second question is actually in relation to your work, which we applaud you for your work. And we loved in your bio that you have, you say that you have a passion for facilitating courageous conversations among teenagers. Yes. Could you take us through some of those conversations? I love having difficult conversations. It's not for everyone, right? But <laughs> it's something I'm really passionate about. I think I've been like that. I say... Um, I was a parentified child, so my mom left when I was four, but even before that, she wasn't really um, too much of a parent. So I just learned very early on what's wrong and what's right and how to speak my truth. Mm-hmm. So I kind of think that's a gift that I want to impart to other people because it kind of unlocks something in you. You feel like you have to live in this silence and wear this mask because society tells you to or your family says you don't talk about that. But I feel like it's really freeing. So I kind of invite people into a space to, um, and how I do that is through sharing my story. So most recently, I, um, I facilitated this conversations at Messiah College. So what we did in this situation is we had students write about their stories. So they wrote about, say, like their microaggressions or something that happened to them. So microaggressions being, um, you know, someone might say to me, oh, you're really smart for 
a black woman. So, and that, that's a compliment, right? But it's offhanded because what they're saying, the assumption is that I'm not intelligent because I'm black. Um, so these kids wrote about their stories and some, I mean, and the stories were heart-wrenching and they shared them if they wanted to openly. But I, what I can notice though is when I start sharing my story, I always start off sharing my story and I have pictures and I actually even showed them um, a letter, a notarized letter where my mom actually relinquished um, authority over me. Showed that letter, you could see this, the kids were like really rigid and you could kind of see their bodies relax and the light bulbs are going off and actually some of them changed their stories because of me sharing my story and they, then they talked about their parents leaving or their parents being incarcerated. So when you as an adult, when you have this point of authority, I feel like we have a position that we need to use it and utilize the space that we have this authority to say, I'm, I'm here too, I'm with you, I understand what you're going through and then it, the kids, you can see, they just kind of let go and they're just like, you know what? I'm going through the same thing, but no one's ever gave me the control to say, it's okay. I'm we not judging that, you. That yeah. word destigmatized. Yes. Yeah, it's huge. Can you talk a little bit more about that? The shame that is involved, that is so prevalent and, and, and so undeserved. And, you know, why is that such a problem? You know, and, and how do you, are there other ways in which you see that that can be diminished? I think that's the biggest thing. The shame is the biggest thing. And I think part of it's social media or how they perpetuate this. You know, our families, we don't want to out our families, right? We don't want to tell our family business. Especially, and I get a lot of kids, a lot of parents like that. If the, a kid will come in, and I don't know, I always say I have this, this spell I put over them, and they just tell me everything. And they'll, they'll say, <laughs> I didn't plan to come in here and tell you all my business, but they do. And then the parents are oftentimes upset. Because one, they feel ashamed, or two, we don't let people know our business. So there's a shame of like, you know, we have to be loyal to our family. We don't want to tell our business. We're going to work through this as a family. Um, but you're not working through it. Working through it is wearing a mask and trying to get through it and act like nothing ever happened. And I did a lot of this work doing my doctor work with my own family. And I, I know, like, it's simply as benign as talking about hair. Natural hair in the black community is huge. Um, so I had a discussion with all the women in my family about hair and we have you know different backgrounds where my grandmother her hair is naturally straight she, she she's perceived as white and then her sisters very much look like me you know brown skin kinkier hair and really unpacking what that meant for them to be looked at as differently and it really brought up a lot of stuff from their childhood which you know they never really shared before and they, i didn't know that. and there was tears but it was really healing to kind of talk about these things and, and not be in judgment of their mother who saw the world differently and still does you know she's 95 and she sees it very differently than, than we do but it's okay it's okay to have a different opinion it's 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 not bringing shame to the family it's not um, being disrespectful to your mother I think that's the biggest thing like you don't want to be disrespectful mm -hmm. so for me sharing my story about my mother and I think I, you said at one point I don't remember the term you use about this guilt that after you share yeah. you have this um Oh, uh, how did we phrase it? Um, yeah, uh, vulnerability, vulnerability remorse. remorse. Yeah. Oh, it's so yeah. huge. So yeah. I recently did that on Instagram. Oh, gosh. I shared yeah. my story after I did the Messiah talk, and I put it up there, the picture of my mom and I, my biological mom, and the letter is like split screen. And I didn't realize that she was following my one Instagram account. And part of me said, oh, let me take it down. But I said, you know what? It's okay. This is my truth, and it's okay for me to share it. Um, but I think that was a really big changing point for me because in my family, we don't talk about that. Your mom did the best she could. You know, you need to forgive her. And I think the interesting thing is like forgiving doesn't mean um, never speaking about it. You know, like I think that's what people think. Like, oh, you forgive them, you never talk about it. No, it's working through it mm -hmm. um, and coming out and recognizing that these situations made me who I am. And, you know, I share that with my with my kids. And so they understand, like, it's okay. And this is why I think differently because of the experiences I've been through. Would you? Our first yeah. book was vulnerable. Yeah. Our second book was even more vulnerable than the first book. And I remember, for me personally, knowing about my depression, it was extra important that I spent time doing a lot more internal work mm -hmm. in preparation for the, our second book being publicized. And I remember actually almost being, you know, kind of sick afterwards mm -hmm. talking about vulnerability remorse that you're putting these things out there for people to read but again it's being authentic to who we are it's our story we weren't we were telling the truth right. and the truth sets us free so to speak now see now then i have a question so did yeah. that kind of free people in your family then when you told your story i think people were surprised at the level of depth they probably had not heard 
I mean, obviously our spouses have heard our stories, mm-hmm. which is why they are probably less than likely to read the whole book <laughs> because they've lived these stories with right, us. Right, right. But um, other family members were, were surprised, but they also expressed uh, their gratitude and they were proud of yes. us for, for putting it out there. I think that's huge. And I, I think that's what I've been finding with my family. So when I did my acknowledgments and my dissertation, the first few lines were pretty much, you know, I'm the most unlikely person that should be receiving a doctorate degree, you know, product of an unwed teenage mother. Like, and I started that. And I remember my grandmother who raised me read that. She's like, I can't believe you put that in your dissertation. And I'm like, but it's my story. It's my truth. Um, and I think it was just so powerful for her. So now she recently, she's 75 and recently said to me, you know, I'm starting to see now why it's important to talk about those things, which I think was so huge for her to recognize. Like, it's not about me airing our dirty laundry, um, but, you know, coming on the other side and being like, I'm okay, but I have to recognize how these things have impacted me and and changed my way of thinking and knowing. Yeah. One of the first stories that I ever had published was, I entitled it Fear. It was about Mm. a a day in which I was just overcome with with fear. My wife is a breast cancer survivor. We have a son with severe... Uh, emotional, uh, d- d- developmental, uh, you know, disabilities and autism, and I just one day was, you know, just panicked with, with fear, and mm-hmm. and and I talk about, and I wrote about that and what I did and and how difficult that was, and I, I wasn't even sure I left my house and was going for five hours and wasn't sure if I was going to come back, wow. uh, because it just seemed too overwhelming and too much, and and I remember publishing that for the first time. You know, in a in a in a book that 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 sold a lot of copies, a Chicken Soup for the Soul book. Yeah. And um, I remember, you know, when my mother-in-law read this story, and I hadn't shared it with anyone in my family ahead of other than my wife, because mm-hmm. she was part of it. Um, and being my mother-in-law, I asked my wife, "Is is he okay?" Um, you know, like, you know, you know, you know so so that 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 vulnerability remorse is is really. It can be pretty tough sometimes. I'm okay, right now, maybe five minutes from now. Maybe. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. I wasn't, but you know, I wasn't okay that day. You know, it wasn't an okay day. Right. Uh, but but being able to uh, come to terms with that fear and talk about it and share it and use it, just as Tom has done with his, with his his the things that he struggles with. Uh, we think that we think we first of all we think we need to do that because of the yes. work that we do. Because we hear from people, there's there, there's one guy I'm thinking of right now who writes to us constantly, and we talk with, who continually says, "I like talking to you guys because I know that you have been through some of this too that mm-hmm. I'm dealing with, and I know that you can you can understand as you know yes. as much as one person another person can understand what someone's going through, that, that he's not alone, and that there's a safety in being able to talk with us because we have our we've been through our own struggles." Yes. And that's just so important, and the fact that you're so willing to do that. Right, because as we're not well. these perfect human beings, no. right? I think oftentimes people no. think that, oh, you have it all put together. No. And I often joke, I say, people get into psychology and therapeutic roles because we have our own issues <laughs> and we're still trying to work them out. Um, but that's part of the work that we do and the training that you do. You, you work through these things to become at this level. You have to work through it to, to be okay to do the work. Yeah. And it's a constant process. And I think you said something about, um, you know, maybe. Five minutes from now, I won't be okay. But it's an ebb and flow, and you have to be okay and and, and know that that's coming. And and what do I do with those feelings now? They're they're kind of up here again. Or when something like maybe my my mom, um, she texts me on Christmas, um, and she said, "Oh, Merry Christmas." And you know, I don't I don't really hear from her because the last conversation we really had was in um, I when I had my five year old who just turned five. I named her after my grandmother, Emma, and that destroyed my mom. Um, she thought that was a smack in the face to her. I mean, she said, I mean, in the hospital room, she said um, to me, you know, stay out of my effing life, you know, don't ever contact me again. So that was very freeing for me being like, okay, you know, I don't need that negativity in my life. But then knowing that my daughter uh, has an illness now, she contacted and said, oh, I'm thinking about little Emma. First time she's ever said her name or ever acknowledged her. And I think for her, it's like, I recently saw a podcast or Red Table Talk, and they were talking about uh, forgiveness versus uh, reconciliation or restoration. And I'm like, that is what it is for me. 
there isn't that piece of it. So I can forgive her because I realize that she's dealing with her own illnesses, mental health issues, addiction issues. Uh, but it's that reconciliation, that restoration of what was lost. So you mourn what you don't have. So for me, I have three beautiful girls. She doesn't know them. And there's no kind of, um, there's no effort to get to know them. And I think for me, that's, that's the harmful piece of it, that there's none of that going on. Yeah, so this brings up a really important topic. We, around this table, as all of us, should be about the work of love, loving people unconditionally. Where's that balance between sharing our stories, especially if we've been hurt, without oversharing and hurting others through mm. our stories? Yeah, that is a fine balance. Uh, I About a year ago, I shared my story and my family was actually in the audience. Mm. Um, so that was really, how do I do this? And I'm looking at my grandmother because she feels a lot of shame because it was her, her daughter. Um, so how do I do that in a way that she doesn't feel bad about what she does? But it's also about her having to work through some of that for herself too. Um, but yeah, there is a fine balance. And I think uh, for me, it's like when you do the work internally yourself because if you can really be free from it you're not doing it from a part a, a position of malice you're not doing it to hurt that other person you're just speaking your truth and and my whole point is speaking my truth so that other people will learn to speak theirs and that's okay for them to speak their truth it's not about shaming my mother making her feel bad about what she did um, but still res respecting her as yes she gave birth to me but understand that she's not in a place um, of healing or wholeness that she can be the mother or the grandmother I need her to be. But there is a fine balance, but I think when you do the internal work yourself and realize that I'm not angry, I'm at peace with it, but this is still my truth and I'm going to speak it. And also prefacing that, you know, I talked to my family about that ahead of time, said I'm gonna talk about, you know, my story um, so that they could understand that that was coming. Which we both did prior to our second book. We had to have a couple of difficult conversations. Yes. And it was not always received positively, mm -hmm. but we still felt like it was important to be able to tell our stories. Yes. Yeah. And I think it's important for everyone. So, it, But I think when you, we continue to do this work, it starts unlocking other people to start telling their story. Well, that's, that's the point. I mean, I think we say this all the time. The reason that we speak, the reason that we write um, and do this, what we're doing right now, podcasts, is we want people to know that they're not alone yes. and they don't have to go through whatever it is they're going through whatever by themselves right and that none of us have to be in this alone you know without anyone's support or without anyone's help or accompaniment and it's also not that you're weak because you're talking right. about it or you want this attention like right. this thing of being strong and you know just you know this resilience and grit i think is great but we often want to talk about resilience and grit in the absence of what are we putting in place to help people be resilient and, and great? Like, so you're saying in absence of, I'm supposed to be resilient as a child when my mother left and like, oh, Amber, it's okay, you have your grandmother. But there, there's nothing that's in my, in my life that's creating these structures in place that kind of give me this um, sense of, you know, that I'm still loved, even that, but because you're missing that love from your, your mother. So there's all these things we talk about resilience and grit, but I'm like, in the absence of what? Like there's still an absence there we have to acknowledge it's okay. And it's not that anyone's fault, like my grandmother deals with that, you had me, but you're still not my biological mother. Like how is it to not have to, you know, be a child and to be abandoned by your mother? Like I think that was a hard part for her to kind of wrap her head around. It doesn't speak anything to her not giving me all the love and support she did because had it been for her, I would not be where I am today. A hundred percent, I know that. She is my superhero, my real life superhero. Um, but getting her to understand that there's still that loss that you have and you have to mourn and grieve that and then and move forward with that. So one of your accomplishments that would need to be acknowledged here today is your dissertation. And we applaud you. And it's focused on the utility of social media as an informal educational tool for black female identity development, yeah. critical consciousness raising, community building, and social action. Could you tell us a little bit about your dissertation and some of your biggest breakthroughs and your gleanings? Yeah, I think I kind of eventually got to the work. One, I've um, when I talk about natural hair, um, I cut all, I shaved, actually shaved my head in 2000 when I was in college. Um, so that was very freeing for me, but it was because I met my mentor who just had the one year anniversary of her death on the 29th. My mentor, uh, Dr. Rita Smith-Waddell, was my first black teacher period 
and all of you know my education throughout the years. So I get to college and I meet this powerhouse of a woman who has natural hair, and she's just really starting to help me unpack all the internalized oppression I've had about being black and being a woman growing up in a predominantly white area. And for me, the cutting of my hair was very cathartic. It was just this whole me of a reawakening for me, a rebirth of me um, coming into my own and accepting who I am and loving who I am. Um, because before that, I, I didn't love being black. I actually hated it. Mm-hmm. So it was really freeing for me. And so I started toying around with this idea of like, I wonder if other women feel this way. And like, you know, because I see now, you know, this whole everyone's doing this natural hair thing. But are they doing it because of the reason why I did it or has it become a trend now? And then social media got into there because I was seeing these bloggers making millions of dollars off of these you know, natural hair care products and, and blogging about it. So I started thinking about how do we form communities in cyberspace? Do we actually form communities or are we wearing a mask? You know, who do we, like our engagement online, is it really authentically who we are? So I played around with some of that idea of looking at um, you know, 10 different women, uh, some of them being in South Africa, in the UK, and talking about like, how do you present yourself online and how do you really, who you are authentically outside of the cyberspace. And all but two women were really authentically who they were. And I didn't necessarily ask them that question. So I interviewed them. Most of them were, were on, you know, through Skype or Zoom or um, some of them had to be over the phone, but I did actually have access to their online dialogues where they would engage with other blogging platforms. And so then I could see were they really authentically, who they presented to me, were they authentic in the other spaces. And only two women were actually pretty much like incongruent with how they were. So I remember the one lady, she was actually smoking on um, the video chat and saying like, oh, my body is my temple, and, which I thought was really funny. <laughs> She's talking about my body is my temple and she's smoking a cigarette. So I was like, oh, this will be interesting. So I, then I went and looked at her work because she's talking about I'm a lover and I, I don't get into you know beef with anyone online. And then I'm reading her stuff and it is all like really volatile, like really nasty comments. And what I found is like people create these safe spaces online. We all need to have our safe spaces. But when you're a person of a marginalized group, it's even more important to create a safe space. So for these black women, this online space was their safe haven to kind of talk and unpack what it meant for them to be black women. So when you have outsiders that come in, so say it was a, a white woman, and it might have been a white woman that adopted a black child or that has a biracial child and was just trying to learn about here. They would attack them being like, you don't deserve to be in this space, find a different space for you, or you don't understand my struggle. So again, it's that feeling of being safety. I understand where you're coming from. You can't possibly understand why you're entering my space. It's no longer safe for me, which I one of the biggest things I found, but also how we as people, and I was saying that as, as black women and marginalized groups, how we adopt this stereotype or these tropes that society puts on us. So we will treat certain people a certain way even like from like um a physical standpoint so people that were bi- that appeared to be biracial we would say that they didn't understand the black women's struggle because they weren't fully black or you're not black because you have a nose like this or you have hair like this so we make these arbitrary markers of otherness and how we will shame ourselves in this space was the biggest thing i found like we will shame ourselves and we adopt this oppressive language for what? And we believe it. 100% we believe it to be true. Yo, you have nappy hair. I found that true in my family too. So this oppressive language that we adopt from the media, from society is just running rampant among our culture. And how do we break out of that? How do we free ourselves from that? Um, was huge. And then also just how we commodify this. Like how how's it turned from being political, me being political, like saying I'm going to do this to show what there's a different standard of beauty there isn't only one way of being beautiful you know there's it, it's not straight hair it's not blonde hair it's not blue eyes so how do i change that but for other people like oh no like i just did it because it's easy but as you're talking to them they start unpacking and saying you know what i do have comments from my family or i do now when i see a little black girl say to them your hair is beautiful just the way it is like they started unpacking that and recognizing that it was a little bit more political than they thought and not political in the stance that you're out there with your fists in the air but just being like you're presenting yourself in a different way than society says you are, and that itself can be political. You can be viewed differently, and you can change the narrative of what black womanhood is. Well, first off, we just want to say that we absolutely love your hair. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, I got a lot of uh, heat from my uh, my grandmother about my hair, because now I have the fade, and she's like, you're going to look like a man. and. Yeah, yeah, I love it. I go to my husband's barber. Yeah, it's, 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 it's fantastic. 
<laughs> we'll have to post a picture, an updated photo. Yeah, yeah I know. Everyone can see. Yeah. How wonderful it is. Let's talk a little bit about the role of social media that you're finding, yeah. especially in your work with young people. And where does vulnerability come into play there? I again I see like these two different dimensions I have one student he's uh, graduated about three years ago who dealt with bipolar disorder and he would put all his business online um, so we kind of had to talk about what's the purpose of you doing that like what are you trying to gain from that and then at one point you know there's, he got a backlash from someone saying oh you just want attention or you don't understand or you're not really bipolar all these things happen so what he did was he really started educating on what bipolar disorder is and that was really healing for him to kind of do that work and educating people. So I think we can use it as a tool, like a positive tool to educate. So also in my research, I found that people are disseminating information. They're gaining knowledge, they're becoming experts in what they know and believe. So there's this education piece that can come from it, which I think can be foundational to kind of doing some of this work. Um, but it can't just be like, I'm just gonna bare my soul because there's so many people out there that want to cause you harm. Um, so we're just trying to get kids to be mindful about what they're sharing, why are they sharing it, and how, if you want to use it as a tool, how can you use it as a tool to educate others and change their perspective? Because when you hear someone's story, part of that is like, can I see myself in that story? Can I glean something from that? Can I learn? And is it gonna change my perspective about what I think about bipolar disorder? Like this person is not bipolar disorder. You know, they're not be all end all, is that they have this disorder, they're a full person. As a parent of a middle schooler at this point, oh, I'm yeah. shaking my, and nodding my head because I, I'm curious. I want to know what are some of those boundaries that you establish? What are some of the things that you communicate for any parents that may be listening or teachers who are listening who are trying to coach or mentor uh, young people into, into what is that line? Right. And I think it, it's true. Like when we can do the work ourselves, so again, it goes, I think it's internal work. So when we're working with our kids and telling them, to respect their bodies and know who they are and whose they are, I think is really important because oftentimes we want to appease other people or we think this is what the cool kids do. Um, but when you're really comfortable in knowing who you are, but I think that takes so much work, right? And when you're a kid, you're developing, you don't know who you are. Like your personality is still developing. At you know 38, I'm still trying to figure that out for myself. So I can't imagine that you know 12 years old you know, all these social pressures and these girls that are developing and like, oh, well, she looks like this and I don't. And this boy wants a picture of me. Should I send it? You know, very being clear on what I tell the kids when I talk to Messiah is we, you know, that's disrespectful for you to ask for a picture of a girl like that is completely insulting. And for a girl to um, so we'll have kids that say, oh, well, this person wants a picture of me, but I didn't send it. But you also didn't say why that was inappropriate or why that was disrespectful. So getting kids to, to voice their concern of saying, you disrespected me by asking that of, that of me, because if you don't say anything, then the behavior continues and think it's okay. Um, so it's really starting to interrupt that pattern and be like, that's disgusting, you're gross. <laughs> you know, <laughs> whatever you know, kids are saying today, like, that's not okay. Because then the kids are like, oh. And so that actually happened in the group we were talking to, and the kid actually went back and apologized and said, oh, I didn't and apologize to the family. It just went so far even apologizing to the family you know, and going as far as saying, like, this was wrong of me to, d to do this work. Um, so it's really getting people to feel comfortable who they are, um, being comfortable in your body and not following the crowd. Like, and I think that's the most important work as a, as a parent. And when you go even biblically saying, like, you know, train up a child in the way they should go, it's not so much in the Christian faith. It's really, like, getting to the real, like, who is this child? Like, what are they predestined to do? Like, what is their gift? And working towards, like, what they're finding out who they are and what their passion is and what their drive is. And I think once we figure out what that is, each of us, it really drives us to kind of go towards that. But when we don't know, we're just walking around aimlessly and we don't know what our purpose is, um, it kind of leaves us in these traps and going in these directions that are unsafe. Can you tell us some stories about how you have helped or what, young people to find who they are, to find their gifts and, and, and be able to really embrace them not be ashamed, but 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 to live them, you know, joyfully. Yes, I think the one the kid that comes to my mind. I'm thinking he's now at NYU Film School on a full um, scholarship for the work that we did with these student monologues we did a, a few years ago, 
in response to a racist incident. And he came in freshman year and just angry, you know, just mad at everyone and calling people racist. And I'm like, well, you don't really get anywhere if you call someone a racist. You're just kind of disrupting uh, any conversation. So it really took those four years to really work and hone on meeting people where they are and recognizing that. This is what I always tell kids, like meet people where they are, like understand where they're coming from, um, right, wrong, or indifferent. It's not acknowledging that their behavior, if, if they do have racist intent, is okay, but it's it's getting to the, to the table to center themselves in the conversation instead of centering yourself. Um, so what he did was he did that work, and by his junior, senior year, he was starting to engage with people that did not like black people, did not, you know, have any interactions. He really was starting to engage with them and meeting them where they're at. And it really helped him to change his perspective of how he addresses um, his level of tolerance or, you know, people that have intolerance. So it, he is such a prime example of like, you know, you can come like you're rough around the edges, like you have all this angst, but why, how can we harness that for good? Because you're a, such an advocate. We want to make sure that we can use it in the right way so that people aren't put off by you but that people can see like your passion and you can harness it towards something. So he's using that in a creative realm and probably going to be an awesome documentarian. Like he's, he's amazing. So that's where he's going with his gift and just teaching kids to just speak up, I think is just one of the biggest things. But once they recognize, um, I can't live in silence. I think it's the biggest thing that I teach kids. Like I'm sitting here dying inside because of how I feel but I'm afraid to say something because then someone's going to say, well, you're just angry or they're going to put a label on you. But not saying anything, what does that do to you? I mean, you're, you're literally, you know, it's, it's disabling you. So getting people to understand, like, I have to speak my truth, but getting them to speak it in a way where people can hear them is some of the most challenging work. And it's challenging for adults, too. Yeah, we just think that what you're doing is so, gosh, it's so helpful and meaningful. You can't imagine those teenagers being able to discover earlier on in life who they really are. Yes. So I think back to my own story. I'd never had those conversations at all when I was in high school. About <laughs> right. Like, you know, what am I most gifted to do? How am I uniquely wired and created? Mm -hmm. And so then you, you know, go through another decade of your life trying to figure that out when you could have started having, having those conversations a lot earlier on. So. Yeah, it's huge. I think we, as an education society, we need to focus on how do we map you know we, we focus on like tracking kids but how are you really starting to do this work getting kids to understand what their passions are what their skill set is i think so often we want to say oh you can you can do it if you try hard enough and that's not true for everything like some people are just not natural athletes but we say we look at the michael jordan story and say well you know he didn't make the team but he tried hard enough right. and so then we think oh we just have to try harder but sometimes like why don't we focus on our strengths instead of our weaknesses and if we focus on our strengths, you know, those other, and that's a part of being a school psychologist, we, we are strength-based in saying, these are where the kids' strengths lie. Um, those weaknesses, will they can compensate for them with their strengths. So why don't we do that as a society with what are our strengths? But I think oftentimes we focus so easily on our weaknesses. Like I could rattle off all my weaknesses very easily, like many of us. But if you ask me what my strengths are, and I'm like, oh, wait. And I don't know if part of it's like I don't want to sound like I'm pompous or I'm fooling myself, but we don't focus enough on what we're good at. We focus on what we suck at. I also think that we, we, we have a tendency to define things in very narrow terms so that yes. there are just certain things that are strengths and mm, other things mm -hmm. are not yes. necessarily. There are certain things that are just better to be able to do. And, and if you can't do those things or don't look this certain way that, you know, the standard, uh, you know, the look of beauty or handsomeness is, you know, then you're, you know, you're pushed aside and just all kinds of ways in which we, we, we put in silos, yes. um, you know, the, the, these preferred ways of being and doing that, that really hurt us, I think, as a whole. That's such a good point. And, and who makes those decisions, right? Exactly. Who says that this is a preferred or, you know, this is what we uh, value and this is what we devalue. And that's some of the work I do, too. Like we have this axis of oppression that we say what is valued in our society is on the top and what is on the bottom. Because oftentimes doing the work, um, especially with equity and talking about race, which is often like, I mean, that's talk about courageous conversations you have to have there, is that people think that white people in particular think I'm not a part of that conversation and she has an agenda because she's a black woman. But when I can say, yes, I'm a woman, so strike, 
I'm black, strike, but I also have an advanced degree, positive. I live in you know a really nice neighborhood. I have all these other things. So I'm not playing this oppression Olympics with you. We all have things we have to work through and that we struggle with. Like even masculinity. Who says what masculine is? And like if you have to act a certain way, or you know, my friend was unable to have children naturally. So we talk about you know once you get to a certain age, like why don't you have kids yet? Maybe you can't. So it's just gets people to kind of think about who makes these roles and says what's valued and what's devalued and how do we kind of step back and say maybe I shouldn't like I, it's an assumption that I made because society makes that assumption uh, apparently a reality exactly <laughs> and that, I think that's something we're also trying to address in, in ways to, to help people know that that that, that all of us we, we talk about the fact that all of us matter all of mm-hmm. us are gifted yes all of us have important things to share and to say and all of us need to be heard. We we talk about and write about this all the time, because just so what what we what we experience is that so many people just feel that they're not worthy, that they're not worth something good. They're yes. not worth being recognized. They're not worth being more importantly being loved. And you know, and, and the work that you're doing, we can see you're telling ultimately, you're telling people that they're loved. Yes, and that they're that's valuable, powerful. That they're yeah. Valuable. They're valuable, and I see you, and I appreciate you, and you're you're worthy. Yeah. yeah. Wow. A few weeks ago, on one of our social media sites, we we put out this article that's been shared, I don't know, a lot of times, and it was called "Put Down Your Phone: Why Presence Is the Best Gift You Will Ever Give." And in the article, the author of the blog gives an example of being a backpacker who returned returned home from his long trip and wanted nothing more than to be able to share the things that he or she experienced with those closest to her. But when the group got together that evening, it was spent most of the time posting photos or (laughs) filtering photos. (laughs) And what are you learning about social media as you work with teens and how do you help teens and adults with social media, especially because it isn't going away? Yeah, I think well, I have a 16-year-old who is all into, I mean, I have to turn her phone off. And I, I say to parents, you know, I have an app where I can <laughs> shut things down if I need to. I can monitor things. I think that's also very important. Um, you do want to start giving them more control, but I think there's just so much going on here now. I think it's also important to make sure that you can have access or you can monitor that. So I, you know, passwords, all those things at any point, you know, I can do an audit. Um, but what I say to my daughter all the time is like, you have to live your own life. Like you're living vicariously through someone else on social media whose life looks perfect like create your own life like what are you doing for yourself because they get so wrapped up and they talk about these people like they know them right like they're like their best friend oh my god so and so liked my post (laughs) and they lose their minds and i'm like you don't even know this person but they do they get so wrapped up in it and they're taking pictures of themselves and the lighting has to be right and then they're altering their faces um and they're checking their phone regularly to see how many likes they get because their likes some somehow give them like value as a person. Um, but I think that's the most like you have to constantly be engaged. And if you're not engaged, so they don't have, they lost their streak on um, Snapchat. So if you lose your streak, then what does that mean for you? Then people will forget about you. Um, and I know even in the work that I do with bloggers, if I don't post something every day, you start losing people. And I haven't posted actually since my daughter got, got sick on the 16th, I haven't posted anything. And you'll notice that you'll start losing followers because they want to see content. They want you to constantly be engaged. But at some point, you have to turn it off. But I would say for me, the last two weeks not being engaged has been really freeing. Uh, but I will be honest, it has caused me a little bit of anxiety because this is a way for me to connect and, and to talk about my research. So for me to kind of back off of that, it has been a little bit stressful, but it's still freeing at the same time because you can't always be connected. You have to have some time where you disconnect. I know families will do Wednesdays where they just kind of disconnect or Saturday, they just completely disconnect from their phones. But I think it's important because you're always looking for instant gratification. I see that a lot of times with the kids now coming up. They want things instantly. Like I... You know, I, I studied for that test five minutes before I took it. I should have got an A and I didn't get an A. Like what, you know, all these things are start changing their mindset of how they, they're looking at life and what they value and what they perceive. So an A for them is like that shows that I'm worthy. Like, no, your hard work shows you're worthy. So how do we change that mindset of being like it's not a grade. It's not how many likes you get. It's about your values and what you're putting into it. Yeah, and I, I mean, we're all 
guilty of that at times. Right. You know, whether it's how many people listen to our podcast yeah. or, or don't. <laughs> um, you're like, or, you thought I really put out something really good. Right, and like, exactly. oh. <laughs> right. I know we had to get to the place even with when we were blogging consistently or writing books that if it matters to one person, it matters. Yes, and and that that's the benchmark. If it if it connected with one person, then it was worth it. And that's a pretty mm-hmm. low benchmark. Yeah, it is huge. But also I think there's not a really good way to measure like who's engaging in your content. I learned that from my research. Like so people they could read it, they might just not like it. Um, but they could share, you know, all these different ways of engaging and there's no real good metric to, to measure how are people really engaging in that. So even though you might only got five likes, think about they might have shared it, they might have screenshot, they might have done so, they might be talking about it at the dinner table. All those things are happening. There's no way to measure that. Yeah. So this author who wrote this article that I just referenced a moment ago does go on to say in the article that social media and technology isn't the main culprit, though the main culprit is between the ears. Mm. And the author says, for example, I can be sitting face to face with someone physically a few centimeters in distance, but consciously a world away. Wow. And instead of listening to what the person sitting across from us is saying, we listen to our thoughts. That's so true. Yeah. And And I think part of it is probably because we're so engaged like this multitasking that we do now, it's not healthy. And you pride yourself. You're like, oh, I can do five things at once. And I'll joke with my husband about it. Oh, women are just, you know, we're wired differently. We can do it. But it's really not healthy. So you're thinking about 50 other things. And I think that's just how our society is, especially in America. Like, we are overtasked. Like, we feel like our worth is in how hard we work. And it's really not. It's like, how can you be good at any one thing if you're doing five to six things at one time? You can't. So I think it's true. Like when you're engaging, it's hard because we're so used to multitasking. But when you can really be present, and I think you talked about that too, like, or it's in when you, what you're saying, what you're reading is that you you know that that person is really engaged with you. Like you know a difference. Like you're not really listening or you're just kind of like, uh, yeah, and thinking about other things. I can really see like the brains turning in some people when I talk to them that they're already thinking of rebuttal or it, it took them down this rabbit hole and they're thinking about, oh, I thought about this sitcom that, that reminded me of, um, but they're not really engaged in what I'm saying. The author actually makes the point we can feel it. Yes. Yeah. I think that's so true. And presence is, is we just so important and so yes. vital and, and 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 in many ways with all of our devices and all of the things that are distracting us and all the multitasking we're not present we're not present with anything mm. in many ways yes and and or, or anyone and that that is a problem and what are some of the ways that you cultivate that presence I mean, I it's so hard for me. So I'm not, I'm going to be completely honest because I have three kids, a stressful job. My husband has a very, you know, high end stressful career. Um, but I know our youth pastor, he says, you need to have one night, just play Uno. <laughs> and I'm like, Trey, I am not playing Uno. I hate Uno. He's like, no TV, just completely engaged, just playing a game because it, it starts bringing about dialogue and conversation. Yeah. But if you don't create space to just have that dialogue, I feel like that's when you start getting isolated and you feel lonely, you feel like you're not heard. Um, so I think we have to try, like, especially my husband and I, like, finding ways to just be present with each other in all the hustle and bustle of life, like having that time that we're completely disconnected and just being in that space with each other and being silent and just being present. It's oftentimes hard because we have three different age ranges, um, but that's the biggest thing that I would to take away from me is like being present and creating that that space you have to be intentional about the space it's not just going to happen because you can find you know 50 things to do within that space but are you going to be intentional about finding that space um, for your spouse for your for your significant others for your loved ones like are you going to be intentional about it like sometimes if you have to write it on your schedule then put it on your schedule yeah. um, but do it's do, important do you do family meals See, now, <laughs> here's the thing. My husband's usually, he comes in at 6.30. He'll be at the island, like he's eating, standing up. It's a whole scene. <laughs> and then, like, the kids are like, Jojo, come down for dinner. I'm still doing my homework. It's, it's, it's chaos. So we try, but I think it's so important. When I grew up, yeah. we had family meals, and it was that was vital every day. Like, you know, how was your day, all those things. And now it's like, we'll have to get the kid here to this 
uh, event or dance and then she has to go here I have to drop Dodo off at work so it's really hard to find that family time but I think it is so crucial can we get back to the family dinner time I hung out with one of my good friends over the, the holiday break who's a, a teacher who listens to all of our podcasts which is cool he uh, he and I were talking about this very matter and he, I had asked him as a school teacher what are you finding what what do you think is one of the biggest breakdowns of why these you, we have these relational disconnects mm-hmm. and he thinks because of the lack of family family values but family dinners family yes. meals sharing memories sharing space sharing space yeah. huge mm-hmm. we'll usually do that through um, like my husband got us all into Marvel movies okay. I wasn't into any type of movie I didn't grow up watching movies but that is our way to, to connect or like watching something. Well, there's a lot like of them. There, we watch yeah, all of them. Yeah, they're out like almost every week, it seems. Yeah. <laughs> and my 10-year-old is going as far as, because she's a nerd like her mom, to research them. Like She has a whole book and she, she analyzes them. But that's our way to connect through movies. But also I feel like you're still missing, even though you're connecting and like, watching something, there's still not that level of you're engaging like in that kind of like face-to-face, like that real authentic and that deep engagement. It's still there, like it's still valuable, and we still really enjoy that. But trying to get into that deep level, like what are your hopes and dreams? Like you know, celebrating those things that you're good at. We do that individually, but can we find a way to do that collectively as a family? I think is our, is our struggle because we have a 16 year old, a 10 year old, and a five year old. Um, so it becomes challenging, kind of keeping them all engaged. And our 16 year old, you know, she's a junior. You know, thinking about college or thinking about going into career, like what does that look like for her? And oftentimes feels like she gets lost because she's older and kind of on her own. And she actually, a couple of weeks ago, wrote us this really poignant letter, <laughs> which I really applaud because for therapeutically, I'm reading this and I'm going, oh, this is good. Like she's letting us know how she feels. My husband on the other hand was like, this is horrible. <laughs> like he's like, he was so insulted by it, but I thought it was really therapeutic for her to talk about how she felt, what she needed from us, what she wasn't getting. I think, cause I, and I feel like we, as kids, we, or, you know, as adults, we feel like stay in a child's place. But I feel like there should be a point where my job is to unlock and say, like, what do you need? And I need you to feel safe enough to come to me and tell me what you need or what you're not getting from me. And for her to be able to do that, I felt like that was really good. So it did change some of the dynamics in our family saying, like, okay, JoJo needs more attention. Even though she's doing the whole teenage thing where she's wearing a hood and, and not wanting to engage, but she's saying, I need you to be present with me as well. So I thought it was really good for her to, to write that letter and we all need different things we all do know? and that's where relationship takes work yes it does it takes work and it's not about what you need so your love language being like oh well I like presents I like gifts not that pre- like so they're, you're going to keep giving these gifts to that person and that's not what they want they just want like yeah. you know they want physical touch they want affection like but that's you're giving them what you think they want instead of really learning what that person needs So we're going to bring things full circle here. Uh, let's come back to mental illness to close mm-hmm. out the conversation. So anybody who's listening today who's working with a teenager, or anyone for that matter, um, what what should they do uh, if somebody has signs of a mental illness? I think first is even, do they recognize what the signs are? So I think... we. If you're a parent or you're a guardian, you you know your child. So something's a little off, like they're not acting like themselves for a period of two weeks. And that's starting to be like, there's some signs there, like they're really despondent, they're not engaging, they're keeping to themselves. Is this normal teenage behavior or just something more? Is recognizing the signs first, but I, I think our schools are such great resources, even though uh, we don't have all the support that we need in the schools, but I think oftentimes it comes back to the schools. So we have school counselors, uh, we have school psychologists, we have student assistance uh, teams. So student assistance program is something that's state mandated that every school has to have. So they're trained teachers in the buildings, um, trained educators that can work with kids or they can, uh, they do a referral process so then they can speak with the mental health liaison in the community. And that person can then connect them with outside providers. Um, some schools now have grants where they actually have people that come into the schools to do the work free of charge to to parents. Sometimes it's 
we can meet the kid at school so that you don't have to take off work or the kid misses school and we can do therapeutic treatment in the school setting. I think um, talking with schools is really important. I know we work, if the kid's in crisis, so meaning that they want to harm themselves in any way or, you know, they're not eating, like whatever that could be, like they're, you know, they have, they seem to be having an eating disorder, that we contact crisis intervention and, you know, we have crisis intervention in every county. Contacting them, they can be your mental health liaison. They're great at advocating. So if a kid needs to go to the hospital to, for an evaluation, for a psychiatric evaluation, if they're part of um, the hospital system, they will go with them to the to the emergency room and advocate for their child. And I think that's also good to have a liaison because sometimes kids don't want to say what they have to say in front of their parents. So they have another trusted adult there that they can speak to about what's, what's going on with them. And then that person can show them it's not as scary as you think it is like we're here to help you and want you to get better but I think schools are a great resource even looking on the back of your insurance card there's you know numbers there to contact mental health um, providers um, psychologytoday.com you can google uh, you can search there and look for providers that are particular to areas of, of need um, but the biggest thing is there's still a major shortage in our area I think the recent statistic is um, a provider every therapeutic provider to 600 and uh, it's so there's no way that we're getting the help that we need. So that's why I say it goes back to the schools and um, just working on these um, social emotional learning, like getting um, the character development, all these things into play, the preventative programming instead of being reactionary, because we can't we can't react to all these you know statistics are just staggering. So how do we get the kids in at, at the early age and elementary level, teaching them the skills, the coping skills and resilience so that when they're at the high school level, they already have the skills because um, they're about to, to be out our doors. So just teaching them those skills and working with the schools and saying, my child needs help and recognizing that we're here to help. We don't want to know all your business. Like, I think, I think they think sometimes if I tell them, they're going to spread it around the whole school. We can't do that. You know, we're legally mandated reporters, but we're also uh, held to confidentiality. So we're here to help. Our last question to you. What does the importance of listening mean to you? How does listening change lives? How does it help people? How does it, um, how does it show presence? How does, um, yeah. how does it, do, does it give hope uh, to people's lives? I think you hit it right there. Like it gives hope, but I, the biggest thing for me is being seen, being heard, um, feeling like you value, you said that earlier, like you feel like you walk around, you have nothing to contribute, um, that you're just taking up space in this world. But having an opinion, um, being given a voice, like giving a platform and elevating voices is the thing that I love to do, like elevating a voice because we're all teachers. So it's not just the adults in the room. It's not the people with degrees. I have all these letters behind my name, but I'm learning daily from these kids and recognizing and giving them and empowering them to do that, I think is huge. We often don't do that in education. It's kind of this insert, you know, open head insert knowledge, but letting kids be the teacher and speaking their truth is, is huge. So when they share their lived experiences, we're learning from that. That is knowledge building. That is um, that's, that is life changing. That is changing their perspective on who they are and what they know themselves to be. That's why collectively around this table, we are about the work of listening because we're trying to impress upon all of us, those of us who are listening, those of us who follow our work, that we can all grow to be more present and to be better listeners with teenagers, especially Mm-hmm. who need to be heard and when there is such a shortfall as you mentioned it's all the more reason why we need to collectively be a part of this movement together and it so. takes one person right like one person they just need one trusted adult that they can feel that cares about them it changes their lives absolutely so amber sesums we want to thank you for being thank with us you. today you've been a delightful guest you have filled with so many stories and examples and so much lived experience yourself and we appreciate that very much thank you for your openness and your vulnerability and uh it was a joy to have you with us today thank you last thing if anybody wants to find more about your work and your blog Oh, I will get back to that blog, but no, I'm going to start a blog, but what it, right now what I'm doing is my Instagram uh, account. So it's natural underscore inclination on Instagram. So you can find me there and I have um, little highlights there where I, I talk about hair, even though you think it's mundane, but it's um, very um, political in nature and just different things throughout life and, and, and speaking and elevating voices. Awesome. Thank you so Thank you. much. Thank you. Thank you. 
Yeah, so just reflecting back on today's conversation with Amber, uh, it was a great one. So much meaningful wisdom that she imparted to all of us, especially those of us who are parents or educators in school systems, anybody who's having any touch points with teenagers especially. But um, also for, for those of us as adults who are aware of others' needs or trying to be more aware of others' needs, especially areas of mental health. We often think of the work of Dr. King as otherworldly, as if protests can be the only form of activism. Yet activism is much more than that. Everyday, seemingly mundane tasks can be forms of activism. A great example of this is someone to tell it to. The practice of compassionate listening is activism. It is a powerful way to disrupt the status quo. Simply being present and holding space for someone to speak their truth is otherworldly because our society often creates barriers for vulnerability. So my biggest takeaway from Dr. King's lived experience is to challenge the status quo. No matter how big or small, because what many consider the truth or right way of knowing and being doesn't account for the truth of those who are often silenced. We have a responsibility. We have to lift up the voices of those who constantly receive messages that their stories and experiences are not worth knowing. Holding space for others disrupts the status quo and love. Again, we thank you for joining us today on the Someone to Tell It To podcast. And if you like what you hear, if you like listening to us and, and to the people whom we interview, we invite you to support these podcasts with your financial contributions. You can go on patreon.com and uh, sign up there. We would, we would truly love that. So once again, thank you until we listen again.